Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lately, I've been thinking about how certain terms from the pandemic are just part of our vocabulary now. Words and phrases that were utterly unfamiliar to us in 2019. Super spreader, social distancing, PPE. And one of those for me is emergency use authorization, or EUA. You know, I realized that that I, as a reporter, have been using the term emergency use authorization and EUA a lot since December. And yet at the same time, I'm not sure I could actually define what it means. Can you define it? So emergency use authorization is something that came about in 2005. So it's relatively recent to the history of drugs and regulation. Sarah Overmall is not new to the term. She covers healthcare for Politico. Right now, she's mostly focused on COVID and vaccines. It came about for an anthrax vaccine that the armed services needed because of biological threats and has been used since then for desperately needed vaccines or treatments for things like Ebola, for other viruses, and most recently, the coronavirus. The three coronavirus vaccines that are on the market in the U.S. now, Pfizer, Moderna, and Janssen, also known as J&J, all got emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. The whole point of an emergency use authorization is that you can get something to market fast, even if there are some lingering questions about who it is best for. As long as the benefits outweigh the risks. So they still are asking for a certain bar of information about whether it's safe and and how effective it might be. But for the vaccines, for instance, they only had a few months data when they made those authorizations. But now there have been almost nine more months of data. The Delta variant is spreading quickly. Case counts are climbing. Some employers want full FDA approval before they can mandate the shots for employees. And there's some evidence that a portion of people who haven't gotten their shots are waiting for the FDA to make them official. And I believe that some people on their own, once it gets approved as a full approval, will go ahead and get vaccinated. But for those who do... So why hasn't the FDA fully approved these vaccines? Today on the show, what will it take for COVID vaccines to be fully FDA approved? And will that move the needle on U.S. vaccination rates? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Toward the end of last year, an important group of doctors started meeting online. The Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. It's a mouthful. The group evaluates vaccines and advises the FDA. And the agency doesn't have to do what these doctors recommend, but it often does. I'd like to add my welcome to this 162nd meeting of the Vaccines and Related (laughs) Biological Advisory Committee of the FDA. Last year, the committee started looking at the COVID vaccines, beginning with Pfizer. We have one task ahead of us today and that is to discuss and vote on the emergency use authorization of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for the prevention... The whole thing is in the public record. And if you listen to their meetings, you can hear the doctors ask the company representatives all sorts of questions about the vaccine's mechanisms, reactions, and who was included in clinical trials. Thank you, Dr. Montreux. My question is for Pfizer, and it relates to the recruitment of minorities into the study. My understanding is that the minorities were recruited fairly late in the process. So do we have an adequate uh, follow-up to to that group compared to the majority of the participants? At the end of the big meetings, there were three, one for each vaccine. The panel voted in favor of emergency use authorizations. They said the benefits of these vaccines outweigh the risks. Shortly thereafter, the FDA granted the EUAs. Sarah Overmall watched this all play out. Could you lay out kind of the relationship between that advisory committee, the FDA, and the various authorizations? How does that picture fit together? The advisory committees have played an important role for the FDA for years. They're a group of outside experts. In the case of this vaccine committee, a lot of virologists and vaccine experts and pediatricians, and also people from different agencies. They'll have representatives from FDA, from CDC, from the NIH, what they did was kind of lay out the concerns that could be had about vaccines in a way where they ask questions about, you know, have you had enough data from pregnant women? Have you had enough data from ultra elderly people, people who are above the age of 80 or 90? Why are there not enough non-white people in this trial? When this panel is asking its questions, Do you ever get hints about things they or the agency might want to see as a vaccine moves toward full approval after that emergency use authorization? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's one really valuable thing about these panels. Outside experts don't have to... um you know, be as diplomatic maybe as government officials do. So they will very explicitly say, you know, you are missing information about this and I want to see this. So in the months between those committee meetings ahead of the authorization and the approvals that we could have within the next few weeks or months, those companies have been working on answers for those questions and a more complete picture of what their vaccine does and who it does it for and how well it does it for different populations. Nine months after those first EUAs, the data overwhelmingly suggests the vaccines are safe and effective. And recent data published in the New England Journal of Medicine says full mRNA vaccination is about 88% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID with the Delta variant. But those questions that the advisory committee asked about pregnant women, 
minority populations, and various rare side effects, the answers to those questions will dictate how soon the vaccines clear the next big regulatory hurdle, full approval. The whole idea here is that when FDA approves something, they're putting their stamp on it saying this is safe and effective. Its benefits absolutely do outweigh its risks, and also we know what those risks are. So if you recall, this feels like a century ago, but when the Pfizer vaccine rolled out, there were reports of serious allergic reactions that were not seen in the early data that was submitted for the authorization. Once you roll something out to the broader population, you are going to get a bigger picture of how a vaccine works or doesn't work or what risks happen. The idea is that with approval, they know what those risks are for a wide range of people. Because for, for they every have more person. data. Exactly. They have more data. They have tens of thousands of people that they've been tracking for months and months. And so they're hitting a higher bar than they did for the authorization. And ideally, all those questions are answered. You know, I think a lot of people are maybe bluntly wondering, what's taking the FDA so long? Is is that a fair question to ask? It is, especially when, you know, people have only just recently gotten familiar with how the vaccine development process works. Like, yeah, what what is taking FDA so long? Um, and the answer is that it generally does take them months to approve something. Of course, you would expect that with a COVID vaccine, there'd be a lot of urgency. And, and I think that there is. But what they're doing in those months between authorization and eventual approval is going through all this raw data for tens of thousands of people. So where the emergency use authorization depended on 15,000 people, overall trials had to be 30,000 people. And, and you'll get people enrolled with any range of medical issues, people across the board on age, um, people with any other you know socioeconomic factors that can play into this, uh, people with different jobs where they could be highly exposed. It's about enrolling all of those people, then handing all that information to FDA, and they have to go through all of that, all those thousands of pages about those thousands of people. And so that's ultimately why it's taking this long. What else goes into the process that we might not think about? I didn't know, for example, that, you know, there are inspectors looking at facilities. That is vital because... Um, the consistency of vaccines is is crucial, obviously. I mean, you don't want your vaccine to be slightly different than the one that your, you know, brother or sister or friend got. And so just as they are asking all the companies about, you know, the data in different populations, who was enrolled in clinical trials, they are doing on-site visits to factories, batch testing different batches that come off the production line to make sure they're exactly like each other. And, you know, looking at, at the hygiene, the safety, Etc. That's one of the reasons, actually one of the major reasons that another vaccine, AstraZeneca, hasn't um, even bothered filing for authorization yet and, and might not even file for approval. They haven't gotten those production questions sorted out. And so that is just as important to the FDA as analyzing the clinical trial data. I feel like in the past few weeks, the demands for the FDA to grant full approval to these COVID vaccines have gotten a lot louder. I guess I kind of want to explore the reasons why with you and, and why it matters. Um, you wrote a story saying the FDA is expected to approve the Pfizer vaccine by early September and that you know people within the FDA were working around the clock. And I have to admit, I read it and thought, wait a minute, weren't they already working around the clock? 
fair. <laughs> hey, I even thought that. <laughs> I mean, it is it is typical that it takes this amount of time for a vaccine or new medicine to be approved. FDA actually, by laws, is required to review new drugs and vaccines in a certain amount of time, and they have not reached that time limit with these vaccines. But you're right in, in questioning why there wouldn't be a 24-7 top priority effort on coronavirus vaccines. There's a lot of pressure riding on this. When we come back, why full approval is so crucial right now. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is What Next TBD. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and I'm talking with Politico reporter Sarah Overmall. Right now, the FDA feels a little bit like a watched pot. Public health officials are anxiously hoping for full approval of the three COVID vaccines. And at the same time, they and a lot of parents are waiting on what the agency has to say about vaccines for kids and what the clinical trials for those pediatric vaccines show. What do we know about the the trials for kids? I mean, I'm I'm the mother of a one-year-old. I want him vaccinated yesterday. But, you know, like any person who I think trusts an independent agency or believes in the independence of agencies, I want them to have looked at all of, of the data. And I do feel like that kind of encapsulates where they are, where a lot of a lot of people are. So where are we in those trials? What we know about them is that they're a lot smaller than the adult trials, where the adults For each manufacturer, they had to enroll at least 30,000 adults. These trials actually are only a few thousand kids. And the reason Mm. for that is it's it's hard to enroll kids, especially very, very young children. I mean, they are going down to as young as six months old. We know that data are expected in the fall, probably Pfizer and Moderna first, because they started their trials earliest. And that also the trials are ongoing in in several countries. Does... Approving the vaccines for adult use, full approval, delay at all the emergency use authorization for kids, or are they totally separate tracks? 
It does not delay at all, but the tracks could merge. There are real questions right now within FDA and, and even within the, the vaccine manufacturers about whether they would apply for emergency use in children. The reason for that being emergency use has to be something done because the benefits far outweigh any sort of risk. And not that they think that it's risky to children, but severe COVID-19 is less risky to children than it is to adults. Hmm. And so it is possible, especially if they've already got the foundation of adults and teenagers being approved for this, that they might wait out emergency use authorization for children. It's a really hard sell to tell parents of, you know, a six-year-old, hey, this is emergency use authorized, your child needs to get it. There's this policy discussion about whether it's better to just go to approval with those. And that is not a definitive, that is ongoing. They are still talking about what, what that will look like. So we don't know yet whether someone like my child, who's the youngest batch out there, would maybe get an emergency use authorization or whether we'll just skip straight to full approval for him. Yeah, we don't know. There's also the idea that you have some large employers mandating vaccines. The idea of the military doing it. You know, how how much does full approval matter in making employers comfortable with mandates and maybe making employees comfortable with those mandates? I think it's essential. And that's one of the reasons why Biden officials have been so keen for FDA to approve as fast as possible. President Biden did say that he wants every federal worker to be vaccinated or to undergo routine testing, but that doesn't apply to the Department of Defense. They have to, A, have it actually be approved or else they're definitely going to face legal battles from, from armed service members who say, why am I required to get something that's not approved? And B, there has to be a safety argument for it, that we need you to have this for your own safety. That hmm. that one's an easier argument to make. Then there are the other people who aren't vaccinated yet. Those who are 12 and older who've just chosen not to get their shots. And there's some evidence that full FDA approval might nudge some of them toward the shot. In a poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation, roughly 30 percent of unvaccinated people said they'd be more likely to get a fully approved vaccine rather than one with an emergency use authorization. I wonder if you think full approval might really sway people or if it's a sort of a proxy for discomfort with the whole process. Kaiser actually touched on this in that poll because they said that while 30% of people said that, when they asked respondents, is it approved, is it authorized, two-thirds thought it already was approved. And hmm. so there's a general public lack of understanding about this process. And I don't blame people. It's it's a regulatory process that few people have had to understand before this pandemic. But um, I think you're totally right that this could be just kind of a proxy f- for general safety concerns or general hesitations and that there's going to have to be much more dialogue to get people on board with this. Yeah, I, I, you know, I hear you describe this regulatory process that does sound quite thorough because the FDA was specific in making it thorough. And yet I think the word emergency still trips people up. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not a particularly nice phrase, emergency use authorization. And it, it does imply the urgency that we have had around this. And now we've all been living with these vaccinations. And we know that largely um, 
you know, bad things have, have not happened or when they have the blood clots, you know, the allergic reactions, we, we now have a better understanding of them. I think another part of the challenge there, though, is is not just that all of us who got vaccinated are fine, but this idea of whether these vaccines are going to be around for years and years, this specter of, of boosters um, and how that could also play into confidence questions for people who are still holding out on vaccines. As we're taping this episode, the FDA is expected to give emergency authorization for booster shots for immunocompromised people at any moment. But Sarah has reported that some folks in the Biden administration worry that the need for boosters might feed fears that the vaccines are ineffective and slow down vaccination rates. The administration is left walking a tightrope, eagerly awaiting approval while being very careful not to appear to be pressuring the FDA. And right now, the agency doesn't even have a permanent boss, someone to fight its public battles in Washington. One thing that definitely people inside the FDA and former FDA officials want to see is a permanent commissioner. So right now there is an acting commissioner. President Biden has not named a permanent person to the post. And while the acting commissioner, Janet Woodcock, has been there for decades and is very experienced, I think that there is this general desire that someone on top of the agency can really um, be its be its mascot, be the person on the on the airwaves, on, on the television who can say, here is what to expect about an FDA vaccine approval. Here's how we did it. Um, to have that public face that right now is basically falling on, on Fauci, who people do broadly trust, but he's not the head of the FDA. No, and, and indeed, Fauci has been out there saying, gee, I hope they do this soon. I hope, I don't predict, but I hope that it will be within the next few weeks. I hope it's within the month of August. If that's the case... Yeah, I guess I wonder how the lack of a permanent head kind of plays into all of this. Like, is it, as you're saying, that there's no one out there to be a a cheerleader and explain what the agency does? Or or does that have organizational ramifications? Internally... um... FDA is a massive place and a really sort of well-oiled machine. So the vaccine department is headed up by a man called Peter Marks, who is well-trusted, well-respected, even among, or or I should say, regardless of of political party. He worked closely with the Trump administration and and now with the Biden administration. So in terms of the vaccine decisions, it doesn't actually matter who's on top of the agency. And I know that sounds weird, but I think it's more about these lingering confidence questions and kind of the public-facing aspects of this. In that story that you wrote, you had sources telling you that, you know, people in the administration were frustrated by how slow this process was. But of course, if you as an administration, as the Biden administration has done, come out and say, we believe in science, we want science to lead the way, you you have to let the science have the time to to breathe. How... How do the various players involved strike a balance here? It's hard. I mean, um, you talk to Fauci. Well, he'll talk on on television, but he also he'll tell reporters individually that he's not saying he wants them to approve it soon. He's saying he hopes they'll approve it soon, but he's still saying it. (laughs) And, you know, um, it it is a very delicate play that they have here. The events of last year still hang heavy over FDA. The idea that 
President Trump was openly pressuring the agency and that the Biden administration feels in, in the way that it's been described to me, that they want to make sure that they are showing people that they're leading with science and not trying to lead the scientists. And so while they want this, they are also conditioning it on when FDA is ready. Yeah, there's a sentence um, from the New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg that that really stuck with me. She wrote about kids and and getting emergency use authorization for kids. And she's writing about the FDA. And she wrote, at some point, too much institutional risk aversion is a risk itself. And it it like it somehow nailed how complicated all of this is because yes, it's science, but that sentence is like, oh wait, maybe this is politics. I see exactly where she is coming from there. I think the opposite is is equally damaging though, that if you move too quickly on something, um, you could be paying for that for years. And so what is so interesting though about that sentiment is it's kind of already in motion. The FDA has learned a lot in this past year about what it can do and how quickly it can work. Sarah Overmall, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Sarah Overmall is a healthcare reporter for Politico. And that is our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks, and we're edited by Tori Bosch and Allison Benedict. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And I want to recommend that you take some time to listen to Thursday's episode of What Next. It's a portrait of one California town devastated by fire and a catalog of all the things that were lost when it burned. Mary Harris will be back in your feed next week. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.